of the Aquila Report in Weekly Review. Uh, the weekly uh, podcast of the Report.com, which uh, presents the top 10 articles that were chosen by the Aquila Report readers from last week's uh, articles on the Aquila Report site. And so we're glad to be able to come together uh, to you. This is Dominic Aquila, along with Paul Harrell, uh, bringing the uh, this podcast for this week on April 24, 2023. And uh, next, we do, and then, say, we do have to say, Dominic, that you are in uh, the, the land of the pharaohs. You're in Egypt, and so uh, we are. If, if if we have audio quality problems, uh, that's uh, or if it doesn't sound quite like it normally does, that yeah. is the reason. And it's currently, you know, in the early morning where I'm at. And what time is it where you are, Dom? Well, right now it's uh, 3.41 in uh, the afternoon. It's seven hours difference in our times. All right. Well, I'm glad that you got there safe, and we look forward to you returning stateside soon. Yes, it'll be soon. Uh, I've been teaching here with an extension of New Geneva Seminary that we've had here for 12 years. And so I'm seating, seated, seated just uh, alongside the Mediterranean see uh, just a little bit west of Alexandria, Egypt, and uh, we're using the conference ground of the Presbyterian Church of Egypt to um, off, do, offer our classes. It's well, uh, nice uh, facilities to uh, sleep in and a good dining hall and uh, classrooms, and we have about uh, 70 students, and it's been a delightful week teaching all sorts of courses along with some other professors. Well, that's, that's very encouraging to hear. Um, and, yes. and again, uh, we, we are going to be praying for your uh, safe return. Thank you very much. Okay, well, Paul, let's follow our regular pattern. Yes, sir. Where you read top 10 from 10 to 6, and then I'll pick up from uh, 5 to 1. All right, so number 10 for last week, uh, theequilibreport.com, written by Rob Golding, The Secret Benefit of Depression. Number nine, we have Jesse Johnson, a pastoral response to gender confusion, caring for those caught in the LGBTQ religion. Number eight, an overview of embracing the journey, a Christian parent's blueprint to loving your LGBTQ child. This is written by Robert A.J. Gagnon. Then we have number seven from last week, Matthew Capone. Does Singleness Show Heaven? Number six, we have Ben Stahl writing, To Whom Will You Liken Me? The Biblical Prohibition of Images, Part One. Okay, then uh, number five is by Tom uh, Hervey on Navate and Moral Numbness, a rejoinder to Russell Moore, and that's number five. Uh, number four uh, by Carl Truman. Does the Church of England need evangelicals? Number three is uh, by J. Lance Acri, Forgiving Each Other with God's Eminence and Transcendence, A Corporate Call for Doctrine. And this is uh, part two of a series that he uh, had on the Aquila Report. And then number two is by Megan Basham, uh, female pastors, LGBTQ, and the future of the Southern Baptist Convention. And then we have as number one, uh, parents and the apostasy of covenant children, 
by Ron DiGiacomo. So we'll start with that one as the number one article that the Aquila Report readers chose, uh, Parents and the Apostasy of Covenant Children. Basically says that covenant children are holy in Christ and members of his church. They are rightful recipients of the sign and seal of engrafting into Christ. And so this is a, 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 an article that deals with the implications, application of the doctrine of baptism that includes uh, giving the sign of the covenant to um, uh, our covenant children. He says, um, uh, at the quote here is that among uh, what these principles teach us is that when a parent loves his family first and foremost, he neither loves God nor his family aright. One loves his children above God by pursuing their happiness rather than their godliness, their respectability rather than their need for righteousness in Christ. Even to seek equality, both happiness and godliness is to deny God. It is to deny the primacy of biblical pursuit of God and that all blessings beyond knowing Christ are incidental to seeking first the kingdom of God. It is to pursue God's favor apart from thirsting after Christ. What can we be, what could be more subtly uh, idolatrous for the Christian? So basically he says, if we're not careful, and this is the apostasy side of the title, that we can, um, by not caring for God and following his, the injunctions that he has in the, um, in the covenant uh, and the covenant responsibilities to Christian parents that uh, we can possibly lose our child and, the, and with a posse where they just fall away and stop going uh, to church. So he starts out, there's nothing more amazing than the grace of salvation conferred to those who are far off. And although conversion of covenant children is no less a matter of grace, pious parents ought not to doubt the election and subsequent conversion of their children. Because covenant children are not among those who are far off. And by far off, he means those who grew up, grow up in non-Christian settings uh, where the gospel is not maintained or the Bible is not read and so forth. So they're far off. So again, because covenant children are not those that are far off, but are holy in Christ and members of his church, they are rightful recipients of the sign and seal of engrafting into Christ. Indeed, discipleship begins at the font, and uh, that is the baptismal font. So the point he's making is that parents, in taking their, bringing their children for baptism, it's not just a separate ceremony or cute ceremony, but it has uh, all the bearings of uh, being uh, in relationship with God, that he is a covenant God, and that he intends, he has intended to uh, to work through families, uh, believing families to not only bring their children to receive the sign and seal of the covenant, but for them to be disciple, to grow up in Christ as they're being led to Christ. And uh, Ron goes through a number of uh, points on this, uh, encouraging Christian parents to take the vows that they make uh, very seriously with regard to their covenant uh, children and to raise them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And so um, this is a, a really helpful uh, article and um, I think it just brings to mind how the responsibility of parenting and the covenant community that we don't uh, leave it to the church or school or government or anybody else, that it's the parent's responsibility 
to train the child in righteousness so that he and she or she grow up in the context of Christ and take their place fully in the uh, church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Mm. So a very encouraging, uh, sobering article, uh, but it's one that uh, parents uh, should really uh, take heed to, especially if you hold to uh, covenant uh, baptism. Yes. So Paul, I think it's something that would really be helpful to uh, you know all of us, especially uh, that it not become a cute ceremony, but really have the impact and import that intended. Absolutely. Uh, he writes, the faithful who run in the ways of the Lord can expect their children to be fed with the heritage of Jacob as they grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful parents can expect their children are indeed elect, will come to faith in Christ, and persevere until the end. Whereas those who, as a manner of life, seek their children's interests more than God's can claim no greater than God's abandonment of their offspring. God's covenant blessings are often released by the means of parental faith and obedience, though they are not ultimately based upon faith and obedience. When God sets his sights on visiting the future generations of believers with salvation, he is often pleased to grant the commensurate parental responses to receive the promises and blessings that the covenant of grace contemplates. Although not a quid pro quo, wisdom is nonetheless vindicated in her children. Really, really good art, uh, article. And then the next uh, sub-headline is Calvinism, not fatalism. And that is really good stuff as well, Dominic. Hey, well, we commend that uh, to you, and I can see why the uh, readers of the Aquila Report chose that as uh, number one. The second article is by um, Megan uh, Basham, and basically it's a narrative to start with, and then uh, deals with uh, some things that are beginning to bubble up in, uh, in the surface uh, at the um, Southern Bapt in the Southern Baptist Church. And so the headline of female pastors, LGBTQ, and the future of the Southern Baptist Convention. It starts out with just a narrative. Uh, in May of uh, 2022, Mike Law, pastor of Arlington Baptist Church in Virginia, sent an email to the executive committee of the Southern Baptist Convention. As the only full-time staff member of a church of about 100, he had never had any interaction with his national leadership before. So he began with a chipper greeting, introducing himself and his congregation, followed by a straightforward question. And the question was this, is a church that has a woman serving as pastor deemed to be in friendly cooperation with the Southern Baptist Convention? Now, says, uh, they, then she goes on to give some background to the Southern Baptist Convention. It's uh, some 40, 47,000 churches, 13 million members. The Southern Baptist Convention status as the largest Protestant denomination in the U.S. is due in large part to its loose structure, that it's talking about government uh, uh, polity, government structure. Rather than uh, a top-down hierarchy, it's more of a casual association of churches who agree on doctrine and pool their money to fund missions, seminaries, and various charitable endeavors. So uh, it's the having given that kind of background, then the question um, that came up was, uh, it, what effect does having a woman, a female pastor have in this casual loose association that is called the Southern Baptist Convention? 
Uh, so Pastor Law wrote this letter, the response that he received from uh, someone in the uh, main office uh, explained that determinations of friendly cooperation are made by the credentials committee, not the executive committee. And so if he wanted to report a church for having a woman pastor, that he that is that was where he should turn. So he wrote back apologizing about this, and then he wrote another letter and so forth. Well, it wound up going, as uh, Megan puts it here, to the uh, general um, uh, conference or convention that was uh, held the next year, and, uh, and all the, the political machinery that uh, would go along the way with that. So anyway, it's, it's just a narrative here, but brings up the fact that some larger PC, uh, the Baptist churches have uh, accepted women as female pastors on staff, and maybe there are even some that are part of, you know, uh, senior pastors. And the question was, what association uh, do we have with that? And so it's becoming an issue in the Southern Baptist Convention that really needs to uh, be addressed. And the slippery slope then uh, leads into uh, the uh, question about the LGBTQ uh, relationship and how do we handle that in the Southern Baptist Convention. So these two issues, the female pastors, the issue of uh, human sexuality are now sort of driving forces in that denomination that they are having to wrestle with. And so, Paul, it's, uh, it seems like it goes in many churches, we've talked about this for the last five years in reference to the PCA, the Presbyterian Church of America, and now it looks like it's also within the, at least the sexual, the human sexuality part in the Southern Baptist Convention. Yeah, you know, it dawns on me as I'm reading this how peculiar the, the PCA issue was with Greg Johnson and the whole Side B thing because the denomination's stance on women and as, you know, office holders in the church is clear. Right. I mean, I know you have some people who are trying to essentially have women deacons and trying to get around the BCO by just simply, you know, not ever laying hands on them and that sort of thing. And I actually think that that is, uh, you know, not a good idea. And, and, uh, and in a way trying to, uh, you know, looking at the BCO as a hurdle instead of uh, what it needs to be looked at as a protection. Um, but it's it's almost like that we've leapfrogged that issue. You know, we, we have faced the side B issue head on, and normally I think churches embrace women as pastors and then uh, make it okay for, uh, you know, uh, homosexuals. So uh, it's, it's kind of an interesting situation that the PCA has been through uh, since 2018 and the revoice and everything else. But we do see this as really an attack on... Uh, the sufficiency of Scripture. I think that is the underlying consistency here. Uh, we, are, we are having a debate in the Presbyterian Church in America essentially over sanctification and the sufficiency of Scripture, and the same thing is happening uh, to the Southern Baptist uh, Convention and our brothers and sisters in that denomination, and that's not a coincidence. And we should pray that all of these controversies and debates uh, essentially result in the purity of, of uh, of the church, uh, even if that means uh, sacrificing um, the peace for a little while. Yep, it is. So excellent article, uh, given a good overview, historical bases and everything. So 
Well, article number three by J. Lance Ackery, Forgiving Each Other with God's Eminence and Transcendence, a corporate call uh, for uh, doctrine um, the, in terms of forgiveness. So he says, working out the ramifications of God's eminence, transcendence, and sovereignty over three elements in play in every conflict and in every attempt to forgive. And the three elements are the individual, the situation, and the law. Uh, so he says, forgiveness is an act of worship in which a believer acting as an authorized imperial agent formally invokes the profound transcendent goodness and eminence of God, beginning with his perfect justice, either on the cross for the elect or in the future for those passed by. Forgiveness is practiced without waiting for any particular emotional state on the part of the victim, uh, nor for any action on the part of the perpetrator. Our profoundly broken hearts learn forgiving by meditation on God's sovereignty, eminence, and in, um, the, in his, this angry moment, on his justice and on his relentless agenda of transcendent good for his own, and by practice choosing to verbally invoke his actions in his name. So uh, Lance Acri really uh, sort of opens up and sort of another dimension of how we should approach the matter of forgiveness. Uh, uh, none of us get away from uh, wounding somebody or being wounded. Uh, how do we either uh, seek forgiveness or grant forgiveness? And he really points back to uh, God and what he has done. Uh, he uh, re really shows us you know, a, a good biblical grounding um, in God himself for us to participate in this. So, and in, in, in really practice the biblical forgiveness. So the individual, what is the nature of the person attempting to forgive and the nature of the perpetrator? So you, you have the people that are involved. He deals with that. The situation, what's the nature of the details of the conflict and the law? What is the nature of the offenses we are attempting to, uh, to forgive? And so by covering it in that way, and then giving illustrations along the way, uh, Acri really helps to bring home uh, the importance of this uh, uh, practice that we probably don't practice well enough. Uh, and he does refer to the Lord's Prayer where he says, forgive us our debts or our sins as we forgive others. And, um, and it's uh, one of those Christian disciplines that that he's highlighting here that we need to learn how to practice. So uh, I can see why, again, this was uh, close to the top with number three in the um, articles for this week. This paragraph stands out to me. Uh, this is really good. Okay, so in addition to being profoundly and completely broken, both perpetrator and victim lack intrinsic rights before God. Both are slaves, either to sin or to righteousness, Romans 6, but slaves nevertheless. Any privileges we enjoy are not self-generated. They are gifts from God. Some have argued that God's prohibition of stealing implies a right to own property. However, while property rights make sense in the presence of a human judge, they don't make sense in the presence of the Lord. The concept falls flat. Stewardship, yes. Ownership, no. Any temptation to claim what we deserve from our fellow man must take into consideration as the starting point this fact. 
both victim and perpetrator have no intrinsic rights apart from God's condescending to grant them subordinate roles under his sovereignty. And since both perpetrator and victim are guilty of sin, Romans 3.23, it must be remembered that they both intrinsically deserve death followed by eternity in hell. I mean, when you read that, Dominic, that'll, that, that should inspire you to resolve conflicts pretty quickly. Exactly. That's the reason I said that the way he approaches this is really unique and special and uh, grounding it in, in God and his forgiveness and and what that implies for uh, believers. So I think it, it's a wonderful way. So it's one of those articles that you're going to have to chew on and uh, read a number of times uh, to really comprehend all that's there. Because And this was part two, the, and it has the link to part one so that you can um, read what he said uh, initially as well so we commend that uh, to you okay well number four is from carl truman does the church of england need evangelicals now he sets it up this way um uh he truman says does the church of england uh need evangelicals the question is now a pressing one given that last few months of uh, chaos over the issue of gay marriages marriage even uh, seem finally to have done what decades of doctrinal indifferentism, uh, even the advent of women priests, failed to achieve, and that is an evangelical rebellion among the Church of England, most committed evangelical congregations. Uh, Theo Hobson in The spec, uh, Spectator uh, is confident of the answer. No, the uh, Church of England does not need evangelicals, and he says, uh, his reasons, evangelical dynamism cannot renew the church as a whole. Its energy is too counterculture. It presents Christianity as an identity in sharp contrast to the surrounding culture. It insists that a true Christian is marked out by brave dissent from liberal views on sexual morality. An established church cannot foreground such, uh, such re, um, energy. So he goes on, the argument is interesting, Carl Truman says, an established national church cannot ultimately oppose the culture of her nation. Some, he says, including myself, would argue that this is precisely why no church should be established. That is, uh, be the national church uh, under the um, control of the government. Since such politically motivated alliances always have a dominant partner and history makes it clear who the dominant partner always is. So the question then is uh, the, the Church of England having gone through a number of transitions and uh, different uh, theological discussions, uh, including as uh, uh, Carl Truman says, the ordination of women as female priests, that uh, we're, now that the issue of human sexuality come up, that now that seems to be cutting across the grain. So what he's basically saying is Hobson will probably have his wish, not merely in England, but in worldwide Anglicanism as well. Traditional Orthodox Anglicans are about to meet in Rwanda in order to assess the global situation and further attenuate, uh, perhaps even uh, completely sever, uh, links with the Church of England. And one reason is that the British I mean, the African bishops see the West's attempt to foist this uh, liquefied anthropology upon the global church as yet another act of Western colonialism. As I argued in my last column, 
uh, here. This is in the first things. The LGBTQ affirming churches are simply doing what the pro-slavery churches of the 19th century did, giving uh, specious blessings to the values of the world in which they find themselves. It is depressingly gratifying that uh, Theo Hobson seems to have proved my point with uh, almost indecent haste. Uh, and he had uh, spoken earlier in the article about uh, how this was so predictable uh, to, to come. So, you know, here we are, Paul, this is the third time we've mentioned something with regard to human sexuality dealing with different churches. We had mentioned the PCA, Southern Baptist Convention. Now here's the uh, Church of England uh, facing it as well. And it seems that always becomes the touchstone of what brings about, uh, you know, churches uh, or you know, the conflict. When it gets to this point, it touches a nerve more than almost any, any other issue that comes in the church. Hats off to Carl Truman here for making the comparison with LGBTQ affirming churches and slavery, pro-slavery churches of the 19th century. That cuts pretty deep, and I'm glad that he's making this comparison um, because, you know, things, you know, you can twist scripture to give yourself the moral high ground, uh, but in the long run, I mean, let's just think about this for a second. It is going to be, if we come out of this, if we come out of this, and just from a numbers standpoint, if, you, if we just want to focus on the transgender phenomenon, you know, we essentially have a people who are uh, not capable of reproducing. They are literally taking that away. So, you know, on the, on the other hand, you have Christian families who are procreating and creating more Christians, more covenant children, which we can, you know, reference the article we just talked about there. So... Just on that standpoint alone, uh, I am optimistic in that we can, uh, uh, you know, defeat this phenomenon, uh, you know, moving forward, uh, specifically with the fact that you have a lot of uh, red states who are passing Christian laws uh, or basically public policy reflecting Christian ideals, making the transgender lifestyle for uh, uh, minors just is not going to be a thing that's possible, especially the next stage is going to be uh, putting parents uh, who do this to their kids under the category of child abuse. Once states start to do that, which that is coming, and that is going to be met with ferocious, uh, uh, you know, th that's going to be a, a, a sticking point. But what I'm, what I'm saying is looking back at history, you know, 50 years from now, 100 years from now, I mean, people are going to ask us, what was it like to be alive in that time when the, when they were mutilating children and calling it health care? I mean, how in the world? And that's what that's what's going on right now. I mean, it is absolutely maddening. Uh, very similar to the way we look at slavery today. You know, we just can't imagine, uh, you know, slavery in, in, in many ways. I mean, how in the world did anybody ever... Uh, you know, say that that was a, a a great institution to keep going. You know, even though it was the standard in you know human history for a long, long time. Carl Truman's article here really hits, and I uh, really appreciate this comparison to slavery. I think it's a really good, smart thing to do. Okay, great. Well, then the next article is uh, by Tom Hervey, uh, naivete and moral numbness. This is a rejoinder to Russell Moore. Um, he says, I offer this response because Moore's article that he uh, references in uh, this article 
uh, Tom does, um, because uh, Moore's article represents an attempt to engage the cultural movement that, like many others, simply fails. In other words, what he proposes, what Russell Moore had proposed in the article, if such things such as Moore's article represent the best that public theology can offer, then perhaps that project <clears throat> simply needs to be abandoned. For it seems to me that it entails conceding much ground to our opponents who are craftier than we, like uh, he mentions in from Luke uh, 16, 8, uh, the, um, the unjust steward, and uh, attempting to put our beliefs in the language of our wider society with the result that they get twisted out of shape and end up being largely shorn of their usefulness. They lose their distinctly Christian character and become more, more mere moralism or rather banal political and cultural prescriptions and frequently they contradict other statements of scripture. So that's quite an indictment uh, to what, uh, uh, what he's saying Russell Moore was uh, advocating in his article. Uh, so what Tom uh, Harvey begins is in a previous article asserted that it's improper for those who have no acquaintance with the survivors of the National Massacre who discussed that sad affair. I, reiter I re reiterate that now, but I have since stumbled across Russell Moore's opinion upon the affair, which justifies a response, albeit one that seeks to elide as much as possible the matter of the late, late outrage itself. I offer this response because Moore's article represents an attempt to engage the cultural movement that, like many others, simply fails. And they, he goes on then to express what Moore himself uh, says. Uh, Moore contends uh, with regard to the shootings that he takes up a, a mantle and an argument that of uh, the you know gun violence and other issues that are part of the wider cultural uh, scene and uh, actually wide debate as well. Um, and so. He um, he just feels like by pushing the boundaries out from that um, from the event itself is not very helpful. So he says there is an alternative perspective on such matters, though it practically unheard in our public discourse. This perspective holds that the view above entails ignorant, arrogant, and fecklessness, if well-meaning, meddling in the affairs of others, and madness in one's mind. It holds that the mind and heart have a very limited capacity for grief, and that as creatures bound by space and time, humans are ordained by God to live in one place and to concern themselves primarily with its affairs. In practice, this means taking a vital interest only in one's closest associates, like friends, family, friends, immediate neighbors, and affairs, work and community, and taking a vaguer interest uh, the farther uh, one moves out from the realm of personal familiarity. It also uh, means refusing to take an interest in matters which one cannot control and the knowledge of which serves only to make one miserable. So he says Moore believes that we have become numb to grievous evil. Uh, for that, for many of us, it is not of apathy but prudence that in uh, that in it in view, if one disregards all limits of time and space, personal familiarity, and thinks he's obligated to lament and do something about every evil in the world, he will find, if he is consistent, that he has no time for anything else. 
and that he is perpetually miserable because of the difficulties of life. And so what he is saying is that we can't fall into a crusade mode all the time on everything that happens that is of an aggrievous nature that that is difficult for us to face and personally and as part of our part of our culture. So uh, he challenges more with regard to the his whole perspective. Um, you know, that, you know, in terms of how do we handle as believers, the, any reference to um, actions, you know, of that take place in, in, in culture that are difficult to understand. And so he says, as I read Moore's conclusion, that it never is right to assume that it's just the way things must be. The words our Lord echo through my mind that he said he did not come to bring peace, but a sword and that he, that we will be hated by all nations for his sake. And with great somberness of heart, do I recollect our call to endurance that if anyone is to be taken captive to captivity, he goes, if anyone wants to be slain to the sword and with the sword, he must be slain. So he said, contra more, whose article savors of the notion that if only we are winsome and reasonable, our opponents will join us in mutual goodwill and meaningful social improvement. And he challenges that whole perspective um, here as not appropriate response. Yeah, that's really good. If only we, if, if only we'll be fair, they'll be fair with us. And, and, and that, that, that's this live and let live mentality that I think we've bought into that is pretty much a lie. We may be like, hey, live and let live. I personally disagree, but far be it for me to impose. The other side has completely abandoned that. I mean, they they don't want us to have our our rights, you know. And many of them think people who believe in God are just lying about it so they can discriminate. I mean, that's where we're at. They don't even have a concept of a belief in a higher power. They they think we're lying about that. Um, here's here's my favorite part. We've heard about this, Dominic. We've heard about this idea of people who love to punch to the right and hug to the left. I think Hervey exposes that uh, concept. He writes, when it comes to particulars, Moore stumbles badly by asking, quote, can we not all agree that something is seriously wrong when a person with this many red flags can purchase multiple weapons of that capacity without anyone noticing, end quote? Hervey writes, no, we most certainly cannot all agree on that point, and it is an example of that naivete and giving practical aid to leftism that I mentioned earlier. America has 330 million residents, quite a lot of whom have some of the characteristics considered red flags for violent behavior. A government large enough to monitor all those people would be enormous and expensive and would have wide-ranging powers that could be easily abused at the expense of long-established rights and legal processes. Just whom does Moore believe are likely to be the foremost targets of such a government given the speed with which our nation is turning hostile toward our faith and the zeal and frequency with which those who most hate us attain to power and government employment? And all, and, and all of us as good Calvinists would also understand the uh, total depravity of man, Dominic. This is me speaking. I really love this point. Um the question is not why would somebody use government to oppress others. The question is why wouldn't they? If we really understand what we're capable of, if we're really understanding the depth of our sin, 
It is not natural for us to love our neighbors, okay? That is supernatural love of God that enables us, the sanctification, the power that allows uh, of the Lord that allows us to do that. Uh, it doesn't come natural to us. And so when you have a biblical understanding of the sinfulness, fallenness of man, you don't want to give... Uh, you don't want to give the government all this power. I love that Tom Hervey makes this point the way he does. And uh, again, this is an example. Uh, Hervey doesn't say this, but this is my opinion. I think this is an example of people who love to punch right. They love to accept these false cultural presuppositions. Uh, they punch right and then they, they hug left by uh, adopting leftist uh, uh, you know, presuppositions that are just not true. Right. And that's the reason he uses the word naivete in the uh, title uh, to signify that um, it's not not well, it's not it's well, it's spoken seriously and written seriously, but it's naive in it's uh, basic presupposition or suppositions in the article. Uh, we appreciate what Tom always has to say on things like this. Uh, the number six um, article uh, written by Ben Stahl. To whom will you liken me? The biblical prohibition of images, and this is part one. There's uh, obviously means there'll be others to come. And the, the coming up with the debate, he says, the uh, history of the visible church is fraught with temptation to know God through images made by human hands. Uh, during the Reformation and for most of the 500 years following, the use of images would be obviously a differentiator between Reformed Protestants and Roman Catholics. In recent decades, images of all or some of the three persons have been introduced to Reformed circles. Uh, this two-part article will lay out first the positive biblical view of the Second Commandment and the Old and New Testaments, relying heavily on the um, uh, the the study committee report of 1981 of the Reformed Presbyterian Church Evangelical Synod, and uh, also other uh, passages and other works. The the reason, you know, just dealing with this, as uh, Ben Stahl raised it, is the concern that it seems like the return of use of images of some sort, especially um, of uh, Jesus and his uh, humanity, uh, has become more you know, prominent, more obvious uh, in certain parts of the broad evangelical and in the reformed world. And so he said the history of the visible church is filled with examples of image making. And he goes back to the Old Testament and he also brings it up to date with things that have been happening here. So he just goes through the larger uh, catechism to say what is required and what is forbidden. Uh, it says that the second commandment builds on the first by adding the manner of God's worship. In the first commandment, God gives instructions concerning the object of men's worship. In the second commandment, God gives instruction concerning the practice of men's uh, worship. And uh, so he delineates all those things. He also talks what is then forbidden. In the second commandment, uh, says the major focus of the commandment is God forbid. God's forbidding images in the worship of Jehovah. Images are properly divided into two categories. God said, thou shalt not make thee any graven images. Thou shalt not bow down to them, uh, thyself to them or serve them. Uh, Turretin argues that there are two parts to the question of the images. First, the question of their worship, and two, the question of their being made. 
Calvin, Henry, um, Packer, and the Westminster Vines all agree in separating the forbidden forbidding of images into the two categories in, of um, make uh, of making and worship. So making it and worshiping it. So um, Stahl just brings these parts out in terms of how to um, how should we respond? And what is the classic? Uh, reformed understanding is that the second commandment forbids the making of images of any or all of the persons of the Godhead and the worshiping God by any graven images at all, even those that represent or claim to represent the Christ in his uh, human nature. So I uh, think just a helpful article here and uh, the part two will deal with uh, mainly modern arguments that uh, favor images, which uh, is hyper uh, linked in the article so that you can, after reading it, click click on that. So, Paul, this is becoming a, one, again, uh, that's fairly new, at least in the PCA, uh, in um, some of the uh, discussions. Uh, question, larger Catechism question 109, what is forbidden in the Second Commandment, has become one of those areas where men um, coming for ordination uh, for the office of uh, minister or elder have taken you can take exceptions to or state differences with the confession, and that's one that uh, has been used more frequently uh, in recent years because of uh, the change in our whole framework of thinking. Yeah, um, this says uh, there's an interesting graph here, you know, contrasting what happens in Numbers 21 and Second Kings 18. Um, second commandment images. Okay, so there's two. There's images of the cre creator, and then there's images of the creature. And this, this the graph is like images of the creator. Can we make? Never. Can we worship? Never. Images of the creature. Can we make? Yes. Can we worship? Never. Uh, he specifically talks about the uh, the serpent uh, that Moses, uh, uh, you know, made had constructed so people could be healed from their you know fiery serpent wounds, and then of course later on. Uh, I think under Hezekiah, they, you know, started worshiping that thing. So uh, we do have a propensity to worship idols. Yes. Okay, then article uh, next are number seven, does singleness show heaven? Or why marriage is normative by Matthew Capone. Uh, he says individual believers are not Christ's bride. His church is. Individual singleness does not point to a heavenly marriage. The church does. Yes, people can be fully human and complete without marriage. No, singleness is not a picture of heaven. While scripture nowhere presents a singleness as a picture of heaven, it constantly presents marriage as a picture of heaven. Therefore, believers do not embrace this future reality by being single. Instead, they show and receive a small taste in marriage. So the question after having said that, and Matthew Capone himself argues and states that he himself is still a single man, that uh, the, that singleness now is still has an important uh, realm if uh, God is not to call someone to marry, uh, but that the, the, what's the common expectation is that we're made to marry. And uh, he goes through a number of passages that deal with this and then basically um, shows that that's the that marriage is the uh, the normative and that, that someone who is single is called
to that by God, that that's uh, a gift, and therefore, what do we do with it? Um, he says, um, I, uh, let me see, here it is. Though I disagree with Albert's conclusion about singleness, he and I are both members of a very exclusive club, never married, evangelical minister. He holds his ordination in the Anglican Church, I in the Presbyterian Church in America. We both know what it's like to be a pastor of a congregation without a spouse. And while Alberry is over a decade older than me, uh, we both have walked the road of singleness long enough to know its joy, sorrows, confusion, and questions. So how can you encourage those who, as we walk towards heaven? You exhort with Paul's uh, words in Acts 20, 24, but I do not account my life of any value or uh, nor precious, uh, 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 precious of to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry I received from the Lord Jesus to testify the gospel of God's uh, grace of God. So like Paul, the focus of our lives is on glorifying and enjoying God. Uh, we can do that married or single. And uh, so he makes the uh, point here that uh, you can um, even reassure us with Peter's words in 2 Peter 1, 3, or Paul's teaching in Philippians 4, 10 through 13, that God gives us all that we need to live faithfully and to live now. Indeed, there are many more ways we can and should encourage our single friends. However, claiming that they are living out a future reality, that is that somehow it's pointing towards heaven, is not one of them. Whatever you do, please don't tell us. It's neither heartening nor true. And if like all buried councils, we fear our sexual desires are an unused appendage, then please encourage us to pursue marriage one way of picturing heaven here on earth. So singleness may happen, but it's not a picture of heaven. It's a calling of God if he's given you that gift. Uh, but in another case, then marriage should be the default setting for us. So uh, from a single man speaking, uh, uh, you know, what he understands the scripture to be saying with regard to our uh, you, you, our present, our time here on this uh, earth before heaven. Yeah, this is a really good article. I'm glad that they're setting the record straight. You know, in evangelical circles, uh, you know, there has been this propensity over the last decade or so to, and we were just talking about idols, uh, to, to claim that those who are, you know, wanting to find uh, uh, you know, a husband or a wife and get married, that you've got to be careful, you know, you don't need to idolize marriage. I mean, that's what we're telling young people. We would never tell a woman that, though, who, you know, is thinking about going into, you know, some other career, you know, that will, no, that would be, that would be, uh, uh, we wouldn't want to do that. I, I just think, and there are people that have made these points more eloquently than me about this, but it's a good thing to want to get married. It's a good thing to want to have a family and God uh, just, you know, have, have faith that God, uh, has the timing, uh, you know, worked out for your individual situation. And I know, I mean, you know, I, I think ideally if you want to get married, uh, if that's your desire, you know, you're being single is not w what you want to be. You want to, you want to have a wife or you want to have a husband, you want to start a family. These are all good things. And, uh, it's just strange to me that we have some, uh, who, who have, almost preached, uh, you know, against, against that in, in a way, um, or, uh, trying to make people feel, uh, bad that they have the desire to, uh, you know, get married and, and have a family. Um, it is something that, you know, young people think about a lot and it's because they know that's in their future. So, and that's not, not again, not a bad thing. Right. 
Okay, that uh, number eight is from uh, Robert A.J. Gannon. Uh, the an overview of embracing the journey, which is uh, a book uh, here, embracing the journey: a Christian parent's blueprint to loving your LGBTQ child. Uh, the author assures their readers: just love God and one another, and we leave the rest to the Holy Spirit. So what he is saying is, embracing the journey has all the earmarks of being a stealth gay slash transgender front organization as an exemplar of deception, doublespeak, and egregious proof texting. There is a reason why they avoid direct statements about their view that scripture isn't addressing committed homosexual relationships and an authentic transgender life. They want to attract conservative parents who start with a positive akin to that of Jesus and scripture and then convince them to abandon the tension of truth and love in favor of a distorted view of love. And so Dr. Gannon, uh, in reviewing this book, he said, I've just started reading it. Uh, and uh, he says, as, in, as I noted in a prior uh, post that I've written, their organization is by the same name as putting on a conference at Andy Stanley's church in September, and then also at Saddleback Church, and has all the earmarks, like I said, of being a stealth gay transgender front front organization and exemplar of deception doublespeak and egregious proof texting uh, so gannon warns against uh, heeding the counsel that uh, the mcdonald's have in this book that they've written uh, yet for the mcdonald's striving uh, involves losing a lot of our old ideas about religion and when you stop feeling a need to talk about someone else's sin because that would make you um you better than someone else which is wrong giving up the need to fix others avoiding those who will choose judgment and reject your efforts of love and uh he says that that's not the way that we're to um go they address the issues in ways that are um slippery they they uh, Pre, uh, presume on the meanings of scripture and they avoid sort of naughty issues um, and just say basically that it's most more important that we just uh, practice the concept of love to one another and love God and that's not sufficient and again it really warns against that kind of action um, so I think, you know, we commend it. So just about the background that Dr. Gannon has written, probably one of the um, seminal texts on the whole area of homosexuality and same-sex attraction and the whole matter, an excellent book to get. It's a weighty book, uh, but he uh, opens up the, the scriptures well on this. So his comments on this are very helpful. Man, there's some twi – this is twisted. This this is uh, – this – I'm so glad he wrote this article. So he's he's actually he's calling out you know the twisting of scripture here. Listen to this: the McDonalds say in their book that they don't tackle many hot topics in their book, like what the Bible says about homosexual practice, though they have their own opinion. Because quote thriving isn't about being right end quote. Now this is interesting. That statement right there: thriving isn't about being right. That's. Uh, I mean, that's essentially advancing an idea that, like, you know, what your theology is. God doesn't care about what your beliefs are about his character, right? I mean, that's just in, incredible to me. Then he goes on, quote, There was a time not so long ago when the world seemed black and white to us, right or wrong. 
uh, and then he, he uh, uh, Gagnon uh, writes, they were, quote, released from the idea that everything is either or when a pastor told them that between God's creation of day and night are, quote, gray periods, end quote, of dusk and dawn. Between the land and the sea, God created are the unmentioned streams, lakes, and rivers, which are not less biblical than the oceans. In other words, embrace the shades of gray entailed in LGBTQ propaganda, and while you're at it, embrace the shades of gray involving idolatry and other forms of sexual immorality. I will just, Dominic, like to take this opportunity to address the LGBTQ the LGBTQ acronym, right? It's now, it's very, very long. So it's more than LGBTQ. So what do they do? They say LGBTQ plus. We're going to have to come to terms with the fact that um, amid, uh, um, among the plus is pedophiles. Okay. LGBTQ plus is, is, go, is making up people who want to make pedophilia legal. That is really where, where we're going with all of this, and, and, and that's lumped in with this whole sexual religion that's been created. And so when you have this book, or any book, you know, that's trying to address this, Embracing the Journey, A Christian Parent's Blueprint to Loving Your LGBTQ Child, I really just think when you actually put, uh, you know, just this... If you put the pedophile stuff in there, doesn't this change what we're really talking about? I mean, because that you're you're where that's where this is headed. You're not even allowed to say that anymore in some instances. You want you're supposed to say minor attracted person, right? I'm just taking this opportunity just to remind everybody what it is we're actually talking about, okay? And we we have to make sure that we don't let them define, uh, you know, define the argument with these, you know specific goalposts because it's actually much worse than what they're letting on. Uh, absolutely. In fact, if we go next to the next article, number nine, uh, by Jesse Johnson, a pastoral response to gender confusion, caring for those caught in the LGBTQ religion. And so he sees it as another religion. He starts out in this article, which is like I said, number nine, uh, as U.S. embassies around the world wave the pride flag, there is no denying the LGBTQ has become the American culture's center of gravity. Twenty years ago, the main American religion was prosperity. Now it is the LGBTQ movement. So how do pastors respond? Well, he has five suggestions. The first is treat it like another religion. Paul, and that was just about what you were saying just there a moment ago. Uh, in terms of the commitment that people make to this particular movement, it, it is a type of religion. So 20 years ago, the LGBTQ movement was about individual autonomy. They uh, trumpeted individual rights, such as a visiting partner in the hospital, sharing insurance plans, and so forth. I fear that too many uh, Christians, especially those who have been in ministry for a few decades, still perceive the LGBTQ world as being concerned with those kinds of issues. He says, I don't. Today, the LGBTQ movement has grown from concerns over individual rights to full-on attack on Christianity. It is a rival religion. It has its own God, self-identity, its own language, that of critical race theory and intersectionality, and its own priests, school teachers and university professors. 
there is a con conversion right, which is coming out, uh, confirmation and the taking of a new identity. There's even penance for previous sins. The only thing missing is forgiveness. So he says they have all the marks uh, of, of religion. He also says that uh, pastors and Christians and all need to be familiar with the worldview this religion presents because it's a contrary worldview. Pastors can sometimes shy away from understanding the LGBTQ world because of how dark and sinful it is. Distance from it, practice uh, its practices uh, is a good and holy desire, but ignorance of the dominant worldview in our culture is not sustainable. A good place to go is Cal Truman's The Rise and the Triumph of the Triumph of the Modern Self, which we talked about quite a bit here on the Cool Report and Weekly Review. Uh, Truman's book sheds light on the worldview behind the LGBTQ movement, helpfully showing its history and tracing how it came to occupy center stage in our world. So recognize that it is a distinct worldview that we need to take into account. Understand number three, that they are after the students. The target audience of the LGBTQ movement is the kids in our congregation. The proponents of this religion are not operating in a quote, live and let live, close quote, environment, but are seeking to expand their territory into every square inch of culture, particularly the schools. Uh, it is the norm for public elementary schools to celebrate Pride Month. Students are taught in elementary school to question gender in general and their gender in particular. In high school, the reach of the LGBTQ movement is dominant. Five years ago, it would have been unusual for a girl's sports team to encounter a boy presenting himself as a girl. Now it is typical. And uh, they, uh, and by the time they get to college, students often are often LGBTQ themselves. Uh, that means they're allies uh, in the process. You'd also need to defend uh, Genesis 5, 1 and 2. Uh, every false religion is an attack on God. Uh, the LGBTQ religion is no different. Some religions are hostile to Jesus, uh, uh, to like Judaism. Some of the cross, some the, the cross, uh, like Islam, and some to justification by faith alone. Uh, Catholicism. Other worldviews reject creation, evolution, or revelation, liberalism. So the heart of the matter is that we need to recognize what uh, that the nature of LGBTQ is such that it, uh, being another religion, it uh, has its own idol, its worship of religion, and we need to understand how that works. And then last, be clear, bold, and persuasive. Uh, that is, there's a tendency on this issue to choose our words so carefully that we end up being confusing. And Paul, you know, we've uh, talked about this before with other articles, that the word nuance uh, became quite uh, quite one of the quite words that we use quite often in our discussions in the PCA, uh, because everybody was sort of cautious and careful uh, about how they were going to uh, speak on the, these matters, and uh, so the attempt at being so nuanced that we sort of lost uh, lost the way. Uh, I think we woke up from that, uh, which was good. Yeah. Uh, very helpful article though by uh, Pastor Jesse. Uh, Johnson and, and I uh, love how he leaves it up. He, he leaves it up to the to the pastor. He's just saying, "Look, accept this premise. I'm going to defend the premise that this is a religion. This is a competing religion with Christianity." 
So how would you preach against a competing religion with Christianity? That's how you need to tackle this issue. And I think that's really, really clear. I also think, and, and again, this is, you know, look, feed my sheep, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. Um, part of the tending, I, I think, is also getting, uh, you, we really need to look down the road here, okay? So we need to gird up our loins and not be dismayed, or we will be dismayed. <laughs> I think that's in Jeremiah, right? Um the the cultural shift that is happening and there, there's just a massive demoralization campaign okay the vast majority of us in the west are, are you know are disagreeing with what is being essentially you know forced in in every major institution every major institution that's controlled is is parroting the same the same thing but they're they're really representative of a, of a minority and the reaction that we are seeing is, the several states uh, are are using what little bit of federalism is left in this constitutional republic, and they're passing laws at the state level. And I know I'm harping on this, but I'm, what I'm watching is just amazing. I I've never seen this before. Somebody who's an observer and a, a journalist, I've never seen this type of reaction. They're they're passing laws that are essentially making the transgender lifestyle for minors not it's not going to be a thing that's going to be able to be done legally okay and again I'll reference what I said earlier when they move what that when they move chemical castration or or or, or uh, mutilating surgeries when they move that under the statute of child abuse where it is considered child abuse you are going to see a reaction from the left that we have never seen before and you're going to see uh anti-christian uh, persecution go up just exponentially uh, when, when this starts to happen. Um, and, I, you know, I think it'll really start. To, I think they've already made several laws across, you know, whether it's Tennessee, Arkansas, Texas, uh, Mississippi, Montana is even debating these things. Um, you know, you've, you've seen them start to say, look, you can't bring kids to drag shows. They're passing laws that they're, they're going after doctors who perform these surgeries, increasing the medical malpractice. You know, you can sue them after your third, you're up to your 30. They're uh, going after um, insurance companies saying insurance companies can't cover these surgeries. They can't cover these treatments. Um, also the bathroom bills and everything else. So from a church standpoint, yes, it, it, we are fighting. Culturally, we're fighting a religion, right? I mean, if we if we sent our kids to school and they were, you know, all given crosses and Bibles, and, you know, we, most of the secular left would have a meltdown. They'd say, don't indoctrinate our kids with your Christian bigotry or whatever they would make up and lie about us. And yet our public schools, because we've embraced this myth of neutrality, which is, not, which is, which is bogus, are being indoctrinated, and the teachers are going after our kids, and they're not telling their parents, and they're getting their kids to transition without their parents' knowledge. All of this stuff is going on, and there's a giant backlash to it. And uh, so anyway, this article about preaching against a religion is really, really good um, because that, I do believe that's what ministers need to do at this time. And at the same time, really need to be looking down the road about what is, what, what's about to happen. Um, so anyway, that's all I got. Doc. Thanks for my soapbox. I well, no, <laughs> right. No, but it, it, it's uh you know, notice, uh, Paul, though, that these uh, the articles, because they stretch out, you know, they come up at different times, and yet they're the ones that people hit, because that it's right now, we know it, it's uh, one of the uh, issues that are is before our culture. It's in the church, 
and we're wondering how to deal with it. And, and it, in one sense, it's so new that we still haven't get, gotten our minds and hands around it to under, you know, exactly. put it into the well, right words. And to clarify, and, I, I, specifically, right. I, I specifically mentioned the child abuse statutes because what that will do is right now, California, New York, they're going to be the, you know, uh, for lack of a better word, world uh, word, the genital mutilating capitals of, of our country, right? And so if you have woke parents that want to do this to their kids and they can't do it in your state, uh, then they're going to go somewhere else to have it done. But once right. once you move the child, move that under child abuse, when they get back, they've committed a crime. They are abusers at that point. And, and so to clarify, that is the issue and um, that that's what's going to happen. And, and, and it's going to it's going to be I feel like it's necessary, but it's it's going to be uh, very contentious. Right. It's ne it's the next one around the corner. You um, It's coming. Well, and uh, this brings us to number 10. And maybe if it's in uh, in one sense, the secret benefit of depression, when we think about we don't think of any benefits uh, by Rob uh, Golding. Um, he says, I've uh, noticed a world of difference between visiting the depressed and visiting the physically sick. The physically sick will chat with you and will enjoy a prayer at the end of your conversation about their illness and the medical plan to take care of it. The depressed, on the other hand, want to talk to you about God. They weep over their sins. They look to, to the words of a pastor as uh, if life were in them. Their eyes contain tear-filled expectations simultaneously expressing grief and hope. So if we evaluate the types of sicknesses, mental and physical, it's easy to see that one type lends itself to an openness to the Lord. Of course, as Lewis says, C.S. Lewis, God shouts to us in our pains. We hear God like Job when we physically suffer. Uh, but mental pain, that is depression, makes us alert to God in a heightened way. Uh, and we know that there are varieties of ways in which uh, depression uh, manifests itself. And so he does, you know, take uh, in this, Pastor Golden does take time to explain that along the way. So he says, we wonder how Paul was able to say, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. We marvel at the humility of John when he says uh, he must increase and I must decrease. The psalmist outshines our spirituality on its best day when he says, there is nothing on earth I desire beside you. How are these people able to say such glittering spiritual things? Uh, they walk through the valley of the shadow of death. They have experienced life without God. Uh, like the title of Martin Lloyd-Jones' book, they have tasted spiritual depression. Uh, it's starting to see how many people are depressed today. Someone recently told me that on average, Americans are more suicidal than those uh, interned at the Nazi concentration camps. Could this be a grace, uh, a gift from God? Um, and he goes on to explain in this article that uh, what if our preparations, uh, depression is actually uh, preparation? What if the Lord is preparing our hearts to be humbled and meek like his? What if if this collective cultural malaise is really just a tremor of God's work of redemption, which will shake the earth. Uh, does he not deserve our de desperation? 
wicked creatures we are, holy, holy, holy is he. Shouldn't we grovel at his feet and in self-loathing despair? Shouldn't we shout wicked men that we are? Who will save us from these bodies of death? Well, when he, ta- he mentions this, the uh, pastor does, um, he is uh, saying that what, what is it that we can learn uh, from things that, um, that we're going through in life? So if you are depressed, God loves you. He is guiding you. He is showing you your life outside of him so that you will run to him where there are, are pleasures forevermore. Do not mask disgrace, uh, but embrace it. Allow the weight of your depression to dash you upon the rock of ages. Press into Christ. Let the sadness press you uh, toward him. Abandon everything but hope and Jesus. Run into his arms because there is nothing good anywhere else. And he goes on to show that the the we're driven. Uh, now, th- there's more you know to it, but uh, in this case, the uh, pastor is saying that this is an, uh, the, the secret benefit of depression is that it points us that our only hope really is ultimately in the Lord himself. Mm-hmm. And I uh, appreciate the way he handled it very sensitively as well. Absolutely. He says, Jesus said, it is better to lose a limb and enter heaven without it than to be cast into hell whole. If that is true, then it is better to be depressed and crying out to God than healthy and cruising to destruction. Look at how many people around you are happy. Nice cars, nice house, a pretty little family, nice jobs, fun vacations, nice clothes, entertained and fed. But if that is you and you don't have Christ, what a terrible life. This kind of Christless existence is like sitting in a Bentley listening to your favorite song, eating your favorite food, and driving toward a cliff. How irrational to be happy in such a state. Yet, how many people around us are in exactly this position? How much better it would be to be carless, foodless, songless, yet hopeful in Christ. Depression can be the gift of God if it drives you to him. Uh, quote, it right. is better to That's go what... to the house of mourning right. than to go to the house of feasting, Ecclesiastes 7.2. Well, that's such an encouraging way to end, especially with some of the other articles that we had to look at today, Paul. Well, um, this is the Aquila Report and Weekly Review with the top 10 articles for uh, April 24, 2023. Uh, tomorrow in your inbox, you'll receive your newsletter and all these articles will be hyperlinked and ready for you to read. And as we say always, we uh, encourage you to read them carefully, uh, share them with others, uh, forward the newsletter, just click forward and to uh, other people that you feel might enjoy uh, uh, accessing these articles and be encouraged by them. So uh, we thank you for joining us. Uh, Paul, I trust that you'll continue well. I'm uh, finishing up my teaching here. We'll be home soon from uh, the Egypt. So I always like to say that uh, the Lord calls me out of Egypt calls me as the son out of Egypt, so use that as my, my thing. Uh, but I enjoy coming to great, great believers here that we work with. And it's a wonderful uh, task. So uh, blessings to you all, and the Lord keep you well until we uh, come into the next uh, podcast of the Equal Report. We will review.